Hello and welcome to Product Quest Podcast. This is your host, Alexandra Marshakova, and my super special guest today is Leonie Muisk. Leonie is a CPO in Riverlane and is responsible for building, commercializing, and marketing Riverlane's product lines. Leonie is passionate about Riverlane's customers moving quickly and easily to a quantum advantage. She brings eight years of experience in quantum technology and business development with a PhD in quantum chemistry from Johannes Gutenberg University, Mainz in Germany. After her PhD, she held senior editorial roles at Nature and Nature Communications, where she was responsible for covering quantum computing and other topics in physics. An ardent support, a supporter of open science, Leonie then joined PLOS One, building and leading a physical sciences and engineering division in a fast-paced environment. Leonie is a huge supporter of diversity in STEM and has previously served on Noom Focus's Diversity and Inclusion Committee. Outside of work, she enjoys playing the violin and spending time with her family, being a young mother of two. Today, we're going to talk about the importance of product management in deep tech, quantum computing and understanding who the users are for deep tech products, and getting to fail fast and benefits of such approach. Leonie, super excited for this call today. Welcome and thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for the invitation. It's lovely to be here. Excellent. Um, Leonie, I know that you work in a very kind of niche field, so I feel it might be might be very useful to to double click on that for a minute. Um, if you could take me take me through uh, you know, what is it that you do? How does that look like? How does that differ to more for classical, you know, product management um, uh, that that is that is happening in, in typical SaaS uh, companies? Yeah, so I work for the, thank you. I work um, for a company called Riverlane um, and we're a quantum software company. So we work in the field of quantum computing. Quantum computers are these uh, wonderful machines, or at some point they will be wonderful, um, which can do certain calculations, only certain ones, much faster than regular computers. Um, and they do this by using uh, quantum systems to represent information uh, rather than classical uh, systems. Uh, and these quantum systems, they can have different physical manifestations. There's different types of qubits, um, the basic building blocks of these quantum computers that are currently in the running to become the transistor of quantum computers. So we're positioning ourselves as a software company, so as someone who does not build qubits, but closes the technology gap that currently exists in quantum computing between the quantum computers we have now and the quantum computers we want to get to that will be able to, you know, revolutionize how we design drugs, etc. Um, with this software approach um, being very aware of the different types of qubits, but not dependent on a specific type. Um, and we view quantum computers basically as huge um, control systems that have to manipulate these, these qubits, these quantum systems, which could be atoms or, or solid state systems, with incredibly high precision um, and uh, so these big control systems have to do one thing incredibly well, which is a quantum error correction. So because these qubits are so error prone, uh, we can, you know, we can calibrate and like make them perfect through perfect pulses in our control system. But we then have to take the problem of making perfect qubits into software 
through a process called quantum error correction, where we basically encode redundancies and then have the information multiple times and then uh, through very clever schemes can correct errors as they occur. Um, and that is an incredibly technically challenging thing to do. Uh, that's something we're working on. Wow. Um, you mentioned that um, only certain calculations are, um, you know, are, are being done a lot faster than, than um, standard computers. Could you elaborate perhaps a little bit more on that? What do you feel are going to be or what do you already see as a, you know, widespread applications of uh, the products, you know, in, in Riverlane? Um, so the the most promising applications of quantum computers that I know of, or that, that I believe uh, are the most promising, um, are in, uh, and perhaps that sounds a bit mundane, but in the simulation of other quantum systems. And Waverly, that's very easy to understand, right? Um, quantum computers are quantum systems, so they can represent other quantum systems much more easily than a classical computer. And so uh, they will be particularly good at it. And um, so what other quantum systems, so what is that? Uh, that sounds very abstract. Uh, it, specifically, that means drugs, for example, right? Um, so how a drug interacts with an enzyme that can be modeled with much more ease on a quantum computer. Um, materials, so if we're talking about energy materials, battery materials, how exactly the process of you know, ions floating through the battery works, um, that sort of dynamics, that could be um, modeled with much more ease on a quantum computer. So to be very clear, the quantum computers that we have today cannot really do that. Um, they're too noisy and they're not error corrected. So they can do some you know, proof of concept um, calculations, but they cannot really, um, they cannot really do anything that's that's really, that would revolutionize how we do any of these things. Um, so, which makes it very interesting from a product perspective, which I think a lot of, you know, applies to other deep tech areas as well. We uh, are dealing with enterprise customers, especially, um, whose kind of jobs to be done are not necessarily about really changing what they do. Currently, they're what I kind of call FOMO. These jobs to be done are about fear of missing out, of being um, on the top of the cutting edge science that's happening and looking into how that may apply to their business in a couple of years time. So uh, a product wise that pushes you in a specific direction or, or also service wise. Um, and it's actually a conscious decision at Riverlane that we are not um, focusing on these types of customers <laughs> as our main customers. We're rather positioning ourselves as a vendor to the people that are building qubits. And uh, we are aiming um, to then jointly sell to governments because those are biggest customers that we have of quantum computers right now for better or worse. Interesting, but it feels that, you know, once we get to that kind of, once we close the gap, right in in the development that will serve as the backbone of you know the future of medicine the discovery right um so many applications um that you can think about um and it although it's a long process um the benefit is is really i mean it's it's moving the humanity forward 
uh, quite a bit, right? Once we once we're able. To Absolutely. So. Absolutely, the promise is immense. Um, I mean, imagine right now if you so, so right now if you're looking at drug discovery, especially, um, but also materials discovery, most of it is done by experimentation uh, in the lab, right? And there's there there are some processes that are done on a computer, but but very few. And uh, the the promise of quantum computers is that we can do a lot more by computation. Uh, with with accuracies that really that really allow us to substitute these lab experiments by computational experiments or simulation, and that is just enormous, uh, an enormous opportunity. That's what excites me about quantum computing. I'm a chemist by background. <laughs> I have studied um, chemistry, and then I went into computational chemistry, actually for my PhD. So. This is really what I find exciting about it, because I, I sort of experienced firsthand when I was a PhD student how how you really quickly, you know, hit a wall in terms of the size of systems you can simulate at a specific accuracy. For sure. And you mentioned already that, uh, of course, it's, you know, th th this is a complex system. It's, you know, a, a lot of people perhaps don't even think about you know, products like that existing um, unless you're within the field or unless you know of, of that specific issue, you know, for a very specific target audience. So one of the points that um, I, I'd love us to maybe discuss a little bit more is how do you then kind of identify the, the end user, the end consumer for your, for your products? Because as a product lead, you know, you really have to uh, you know, listen to them, understand what is it that they require. Um, and I bet there's a lot of technical specifications in your type, in the types of the products that you're working on. So what, what is your approach in terms of, you know, customer discovery? How does that look like in your field? And then how does effectively customer testing, <laughs> right, look like? Um, and how do you then bring that product to the market? Yeah. So, um, we sort of sidestepped the issue of, of the, the end users of quantum computers a bit for now as a company. We made a very conscious decision to not think about them too much um, because that would push us towards being a kind of a consulting company, selling insight rather than, rather than making products, which is what we wanted to do. Um, and uh, so we are making uh, products that help close that technology gap that still exists. Specifically, um, better control systems for quantum computers that scale and that make it easier for people in the lab to really make these big inventions <laughs> that they need to make to uh, to get to you know scaled up error corrected quantum computers that are really useful for the end user. Um, and we're also working on error correction on specific uh, products in error correction uh, called decoders. Um, and perhaps I can talk a bit about the control systems. Uh, there, the user is obviously someone in the lab that's experimenting, uh, typically a physicist. They have specific, you know, skill sets and are struggling with other skill sets. Um, for example, in um, quantum computers, the control system is very FPGA-based, which and programming FPGAs is very hard uh, for someone who's a physicist. Um, so we can make that easy for them in terms of architecture. They have certain pain points about how they specific, how they use 
uh, their control system to write an experiment, to run the experiment, how they want to get experimental data out. So, um, so in that sense, it's actually quite a classic product problem for this control system product, right? Uh, the one um, issue is that we have to balance kind of the short-term goals with the long-term goals uh, as the field is so rapidly changing. What people do today in the lab uh, may not at all be what they do next year in the lab or in two years uh, because, because the, the experiments, they scale up right to more qubits, to bigger machines. Um, so we and that that becomes a bit of a you know a bit of a um, antagonism right within the company and with you know stakeholders of the company what do we optimize for the short term the long term we're very much trying to keep our eyes on the prize of the long term goals um, uh, not forgetting the users obviously and what they want today and like but really getting into their heads and also trying to anticipate what they want tomorrow um, and that, that's that's really kind of the the heart of the the big biggest problem with that product proposition. Otherwise, it's it's pretty classic. Uh, perhaps another uh, difference uh, is that there are very few users, right? They're, they're, they're not. I can't talk to a thousand people. <laughs> that would be wise anyway. But I can't get data from a thousand people. I have a very a very small set of potential users at the moment, which will grow over time as quantum computers grow. Uh, quantum computing grows as an industry. I suppose, though, if you do have, you know, let's say five to 10 users or even, you know, 100 users, it does bring you um, closer. So to a certain extent, you can still on a very personal level, you know, not in a survey style, but over the conversation, test out certain concepts and the receptiveness of the, you know, of the user towards certain concepts, which overall is, is just a different approach to, to testing. Uh, superbly adapted to, you know, to um, the kind of specificity of a product um, and how it needs to be developed. Uh, but wow, that's absolutely super. And uh, generally, I know that, you know, product is not necessarily, it, it, it's, it's not something that you've started with, right? So you, you have um, kind of a, a very wide um, you've cast a wide net in terms of what you've got into, what you're covering still, right? Um, how you're, you know, developing the product. Your responsibilities right now are also, you know, rather wide. How did you uh, discover kind of the science of product management? How did you first um, get into the product? Um, what was the kind of a clicking moment of, of this transition? <laughs> um, it's interesting you say science of product management. I always think it's more of an art. <laughs> um, so, uh, yeah, uh, it's a good question. Uh, I, I came to this slightly randomly, but then discovered a lot of uh, skills that I have picked up over the years that are incredibly useful. So, I, yeah, I, I um, used to work as, an, as a manuscript editor for the journal Nature, and that meant... Um, you know, chaperoning manuscripts through the through the publication process, so scientific manuscripts, uh, and that happened to be quantum computing manuscripts. That was one of my beats. So I've been watching the community for quite a long time, and also seeing it develop, seeing that kind of transition from like being a very academic discipline to being a more engineering-driven discipline, which is something we're riding on at Revelate as well. 
that's something that I uh, that I really think I picked up during those years is this sort of like anthropological lens uh, onto science uh, and scientists uh, and engineers. Uh, so this this um, slightly uh, this position as kind of like the joker in the card deck, you know, being part of it, but also observing what they're doing with fresh eyes of an outsider and really figuring out what the community thinks is important so I could make good decisions on these manuscripts that I was chaperoning through the process and deciding on whether they would see, you know, be published in nature or not. And so this anthropological lens is something I find incredibly, incredibly exciting and, and interesting. And this uh, anthropology or, or, or sociology and the qualitative methods that are associated uh, with, with that, uh, that era of research are uh, incredibly important in product management, right? Uh, especially when we go deep, which is something we do at Riverlane all the time because we have so few customers. Um, so uh, that's that's one of the one of the kind of uh, uh, hooks into my past. The other is that I've always been incredibly uh, fascinated by failure and by learning from failure. And uh, when I was a PhD student, um, I uh, founded kind of a scientific journal where you could publish things that didn't work <laughs> with a fellow. PhD student um, and, and yeah, a group there. It's still going. It's kind of still a PhD project at my old university, which I'm quite proud of. Um, and so I think as a product manager, you really need to embrace failure and like being wrong, right? Uh, I sometimes flippantly uh, say my job at Revelane is really to make sure that the company doesn't fool itself, which sometimes puts, puts me in a slightly weird kind of position of the little gnome that always says no. Uh, but, um, but, uh, yeah, I try, I try very hard to avoid those dynamics, but, uh, but, but really that's one of the most important jobs that I have is to make sure that if we find signs of something not working, we quickly and honestly talk about it and, and see how we move on. Yeah, it's uh, getting to getting to failure a lot faster is uh, perhaps equally as important as finally hitting something right. Um, I always imagine it, you know, your kind of testing process and selection of either features or even product ideas. It's uh, just trying to shoot a dart into bullseye in the room filled with darkness where you haven't really, you don't know where the where the target is. So you're just trying and probing and, you know, um, kind of feeling the walls where they are. Uh, and then finally, you know, hitting it uh, hopefully right, you know, on, I don't know, 10th, 20th, 30th attempt. Depends on, you know, the, the type of the problem that you're solving. But uh, I totally agree with you. It, the, the failure is something that is comes together hand in hand with product. And I could imagine that in, you know, highly technical environments, it's very easy for certain people to kick out um, and, and really forget about the, the large picture because it's, you know, let's face it, it's really great when you're developing something. When something works, it's yours. You attach the feeling to it and it suddenly becomes really difficult to take any um, even constructive criticism about that. So it, it does does take a while to, um, uh, you know, to, to kind of warm up to that um, and finally let go. Um, but this you know, you, you mentioned that, you know, you've, you've also stopped a couple of products, right? When you came to the conclusion that That's they right. were not working. 
what was you know what was the situation like could you elaborate on how you've come to that decision and then also manage the aftermath because i feel this is the whole kind of an aftermath of a bit of a tsunami um sometimes that you need to to um to handle um to close out you know all of the all of the open questions what was your approach there what was the story yeah um the first one i want to mention is uh one that's connected to end users of quantum computers so we dabbled in this a bit and thought about very deeply about whether we could productize insight or, or gaining in, or delivering insight to to enterprise customers who want to know what quantum computing is all about and when it would be relevant to their specific problems and um that that was very interesting so we we combined it with kind of a research project so it you know it it was the, the risk wasn't too high uh to to really think about productization while we were doing this research or r&d project um and the the projects were about resource estimation so uh the question for uh, we, we tried to answer was for that type of problem that shape of problem this specific chemical that we want to calculate properties of how big a quantum computer do we need and what kind of quantum computer do we need to really calculate this um and uh the the problems we ran into were that enterprise customers uh some were were absolutely sophisticated enough to understand the numbers and to understand what kind of insight that might give give them um others were not so we would have to have a lot more around it in terms of service to to really make them understand what we're actually spitting out with this tool um but the biggest problem i guess was that they were scared by the numbers and the tool didn't really give them a path towards those numbers so they were scared by the size of quantum computer they would need to do anything interesting and and we didn't give them any any way out you know like those were the numbers and then you know it didn't come with like a a more sophisticated kind of roadmap or something that would tell them oh and according to the latest estimations uh you know we we estimate that that will be by 2035 or something um uh um and we also didn't really find a way to do that properly within that tool um so we eventually decided to stop the productization of it and yes it was painful and i'm not sure the aftermath was managed as well as possible uh but well, you live you learn <laughs> um it the the we're still observing the space so it's not completely killed but you know it's kind of lying low at the moment um and we uh, the the project still lives on as a research project which is quite central to us so uh, so it's not it, it's not like it's completely gone which i think helps um but so yeah coming to decision points also jointly with teams that have worked on something and really poured their heart into something and made something their baby is obviously really really hard um so yeah uh, the the communication about it the kind of collaborative decision making um uh, i think those are those are things i also learn learn about every day about how to do it best and kind of um, broaden my toolkit i guess about how we can really lead these conversations productively with everyone being heard and, and then come to a good conclusion together the other uh, thing that we tried uh, was 
uh, to um, to have kind of like a well, we called it an OS, and we we still describe what we're doing as an OS. Um, of quantum computing, the, the operating system of quantum computing, the control system and the error correction part being the most important things um, right now. Um, but so the, the original version of the OS uh, was more uh, designed with programmers in mind that would uh, then uh, be allowed to really program the control system pretty much directly. So someone who wants to run a calculation on a quantum computer could then program the, the, the control system of the quantum computer pretty much directly. Uh, and there was there were usability issues. Um, the programmers had to know how to write FPGA code, uh, even if we used like a Python-esque version of uh, FPGA code. And we ran into huge problems because of that. Um, and we stopped it. We learned a lot about, uh, about control systems of quantum computers and how what their limitations are. So it really informed what we're doing right now. Uh, but but that was also quite painful to transition then from that that insight um, into that new project that we realized uh, was a more worthy and valuable thing to do right now. Yeah, I feel always you know irrespective of how the the product is in, in what stage the the product um, is in terms of its maturity. Once you've started something, it's extremely extremely difficult to. Uh, to stop, and uh, despite you know, despite the fact that numbers might be telling you that there is no market for 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 what you're developing, or it might simply not be the right timing, right? Because that's I I think one of the one of the um, uh, maybe unseen um, unseen reasons why you shouldn't just start just right now, right? It's it's never quite you're closing the 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 whole topic, right? You can maintain it on a very low level but not invest so much time into it and so much hopes uh, and energy and focus of all of the team, but rather sort of reroute it to a different, uh, to a different product. So that, that's fantastic that you, you know, you didn't really, I mean, it's central for, for you. So you didn't really have to um, close it completely, but uh, it's always painful <laughs> to, um, to stop, um, to stop the products from uh, sort of almost going to the market and commercializing Hopefully it will materialize, uh, you know, two, five years from now, uh, whenever will be the good time for the market. Likely you'll, you'll, you'll see that as well. And uh, hopefully all of the efforts of the team will be, although delayed, but still, you know, materializing into something that people are using and governments are using and uh, generally the industries that the product is supporting are using. Yeah, absolutely. And as you say, timing's everything. And especially in a deep tech context where we're doing something so experimental and speculative, uh, getting the timing right is difficult, but everything. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know that, Leonie, you're, you know, you're um, a huge supporter of a diversity in STEM, and I I'd love to double click on that, that subject a little bit more. And this is something that we have in common and um, uh, we've, you know, in our very first chat, um, I've noted that it's disappointing to continue to see about only about 10% of females in product engineering. The more technical the field, the less the, the females uh, we, we tend to find. So I'd love to take your uh, take on that um, and see, you know, what your thoughts are in terms of correcting it. And perhaps, you know, for the fellow females in product or engineering who are listening, you would have um, a couple of examples from your own life 
that uh, will really be encouraging um, and fascinating to help them get into the field uh, and really, uh, you know, maintain the balance between between work and life and not sacrifice anything. Yeah, thanks uh, for bringing it up. Um, I'm I'm obviously yeah a huge supporter for the. For, of diversity, but also inclusion. I feel like diversity is talked a lot about, but inclusion is is perhaps the 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 place to start if you're in a company, right, and you want to make a change. Uh, and but perhaps it's also the more difficult thing to do because <laughs> it's really about being super self aware about who you include in specific conversations and why you may or may not include them, why you may ask someone for advice and not someone else. Um, so, so it's about being hyper aware um, of your own biases and also calling out other people's biases. And this is incredibly hard. Um, it's it's much easier, I feel, when there is there is a healthy gender balance and a healthy inclusion on the top. Right, it permeates to the bottom <laughs> of the company where there is something that 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 is already being lived as an example uh, for everyone else, uh, but it gets hard and it gets especially hard when you're scaling as a company very, very rapidly um, because you kind of lose a bit the, the kind of the, this, this, you know, this, um, this feel and this influence over the culture um, as you're, as you're adding tons more people and then, you know, they just go off and do their own thing. Um, so, so this is, this has definitely not been easy. Um, yeah, speed is, uh, sometimes, you know, um, a blessing and a curse, right. When you, when you scale, yeah. um, certain things come very quickly. If you, if you're, if you're hitting the market, right, your clients come, but, um, sometimes that causes you to sacrifice something else. And I know I've, I've shared that with you. Um, on average, it takes longer for the female to make a decision to uh, to move to a different uh, to a different role. Um, but once this is made, you know, uh, they they tend to um, tend to stay longer in a company. But this mm -hmm. initial period of literally extra couple of weeks, where you could have you know expanded your search, you know, from from my perspective, or you've you know you could have elaborated, or you know talked a little bit more with, with individuals that costs uh, a lot in diversity efforts, right? Um, and, culture, and that's already a longer term impact, uh, negative impact that you're uh, almost, you know, almost unknowingly creating for, for the company. Yeah, that's true. And um, I've, I've observed similar things, uh, and I think this is actually well documented that it takes longer for women, especially with young children, to say yes to something like a speaking engagement. Um, and uh, because, well, there's 5,000 things to think about if you're thinking about a speaking engagement uh, or, or, you know, other things that, that, that are related to self-promotion. And then obviously there's a sort of gender stereotype, which I think, bears out in many cases about self-promotion being harder for for women it's just a role that we generally don't occupy as well um you know the the the, the role of a very confident assertive <laughs> authoritative figure um you know we make ourselves small we make ourselves non-threatening so we can get by in the day-to-day -day life <laughs> 
and um, and uh, part of that is also saying assertively, yes, I want to do this. Uh, I'll I'll think about the ramifications later. Uh, it's something I'm trying to do better <laughs> personally, but it's very very hard. Yeah, no, I second that, especially in the fields where you know you 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 don't really see or feel sometimes the support from other females because they might not be there or present. Um, it's difficult to be, you know, to be a little bit alone um, in, in that sense. Uh, but it's, you know, management styles differ. There are great managers uh, who are male and female. So when not put a complete cross on just must must be having the, the female um, or, uh, you know, representative from, from a group that you would identify uh, with the most out there. But um, irrespective of, you know, your preferences, your gender, your selected um, uh, characteristic, you know, you could still um, help others achieve their own goals, irrespective of, you know, what might be different, um, different about them from, from you. So I think yeah. if you take a collaborative approach, that will already exactly. Exactly. Uh, so one thing that I, that I really want to encourage some of everyone to do is is really look behind the articulation of uncertainty within specific people. I think in product management, it's incredibly important that you understand how certain you are about something and then effectively communicate how uncertain you are about something. And um, I think as as women, again, this is like stereotyping a bit, but we tend to to express more uncertainty than we have. <laughs> and typically men do the opposite, especially men in authority positions feel that they need to often, you know, uh, not be uncertain at all. And I think that can be very dangerous for product-led approach. Um, but if you have people that express a lot of uncertainty, it's very hard for them to see that they're actually competent, that they actually know what they're talking about, that they actually have thought it through and they're just expressing a level of uncertainty that that they feel is appropriate uh, so so it's it's hard to it's hard to often translate i guess between these different styles as you say yes uh, uh certain genders are prone to over exaggerate and then under represent or under exaggerate um brilliant leonie um perhaps the last question for you so if you were to Sort of go back to the beginning of your career not necessarily in product management but overall in, into the beginning of your career and uh, give yourself perhaps like one core piece of advice what would that be oh chill <laughs> uh, it's all gonna be fine <laughs> that's uh yeah that's that's great we, we've had um yeah i think uh, responses such as you know have fun you know work it's not everything and very encouraging to uh, yeah, it, and it's very difficult, you know, to to keep chilled, <laughs> to keep your cool, and uh, you know, still enjoy the life and really maintain that kind of, you know, balance. Uh, nobody enjoys the journey, as, as I think um, everybody exactly the outcome. But when the outcome is there, we don't enjoy it either. So it's lose lose. Well. Uh, Leonie, thank you so much. It's been it's been superb having you uh, having you as a guest. Um, uh, appreciate you sharing your your thoughts and your most intriguing, um, uh, hopefully quantum leaps into the future of of all of our lives. Uh, really, thank you uh, for for taking the time, and hopefully we'll we'll speak again in in the future.
Thank you so much, Alexandra. Thank you for having me.